Is pre-recorded. Thank you so much for coming here for Jesus today. I know this blesses his heart each time we gather before him. I want to encourage you today just to say that Jesus is our defense. He is our guide and he is our life. And if he's not been functioning this way for you, He can today, and He can tomorrow, and in the coming days and years, if you choose to. Please go with me to Psalm 40. I'll begin reading at verse 11. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without numbers surround me. My sins have have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. When we do things that are contrary to the will of God, troubles upon troubles come, and then our sins grow. And they become so overwhelming to us. And we feel so discouraged. And we get to a place where we sink so low. 
where in our hearts we feel condemned. And yes, we are in a place of condemnation. If Jesus hasn't been our defense, if he's not shed light in our hearts, when a man or a woman is in this place, there's no escape from the destructive patterns of their life. Things happen over and over, and the sin that so often comes and entangles the heart keeps that man or woman hostage. It's in this place where we meet Jesus, where he has to come and be our defense, where he has to come and be our advocate. First John 2 says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you may not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is that tone and sacrifice for sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. If you find yourself in this place where you're sinking in the mire of sin, in the depths of your heart you feel condemned because of something you did, know today that Jesus is your advocate. He is our advocate. He is the one that comes and turns back the devil, that comes back and turns back the sin in our hearts. For David says that my sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. That's what happens. When we're in sin, we're blinded. We don't know what's true. And there's often confusion between what's true and what's, what's wrong, what's clean and what's unclean. What allows our prayers to enter the court of heaven that Jesus can begin to hear and to take up our case is when we begin to lay everything out and to say, Lord, this is what I've done. It's me. This is where my heart is. This is what I love. And I need you to set me free. So you don't have to stay in that place where you're sinking every day, where in your heart you feel condemned. You don't have to stay in that place. Jesus wants to set us free. And know that when he does, he does an awesome work. When he sets us free, he also makes it possible for us not to be in that place again. And he comes and he guides us in the way that we should go, along the right paths that will not lead back into a slimy pit, back into darkness. And then everything that we do is all for the glory of Jesus. But I know that a man or a woman will not want this escape unless he truly desires Jesus and not just the salvation from the circumstance. Jesus is the life, and he is our gate. So I thank God that we have an advocate that hears our cries 
And I recognize that we are in different places. Some of us may be crying out for things in our hearts that we want Jesus to come and deal with and to straighten our paths, make us true on the inside that we can not feel condemned and not hear that voice saying, you hypocrite, but can have peace with Jesus. And then there are others of us that are crying out for, for other people where we're saying, okay, Lord, now that you've set me free, how do I walk? How do you use me to reach out to someone else? Don't let your petitions be silent today. No matter what it is, whether it's for you to be true on the inside, that you can be a light, or whether it's for someone else, keep besieging heaven's door. Because John says that we do have an advocate. And if he can free us from our sins, surely he can answer the cries of our hearts for other things. So I encourage you today, let Jesus be your defense. Let him be your guide. Let him be your life. I welcome you today to the National Prayer Chapel. Let's prepare our hearts for the word of God. Almighty God, will you come now? Will you speak to our hearts? Will you quicken us by the presence of your Holy Spirit? I pray in your holy name. Amen. The message today is entitled, Do Not Stonewall Jesus. Do Not Stonewall Jesus. When a couple begins to hold secrets from the other partner, when a couple begins to stop talking and there are days of silence, it's a sign of stonewalling. It is the final sign of a breakup about to happen. For a marriage cannot survive where one or the other stonewalls the other partner. For a marriage to be healthy, there must be a flowing communication, conversation, if you please, even fighting. Any healthy marriage has fighting, but fair fighting, not name-calling, not blaming, but settling of differences. But stonewalling is the final sign that this marriage is about to go bust. One of the final signs that you are about to turn away from Jesus is stonewalling him. Jesus was very concerned about this. He said, John the Baptist came. He was stern. He did not drink. John the Baptist, you said he has a demon in him. You turned aside from him. You would not submit to his baptism. He is speaking now specifically to the religious leaders of his day. They rejected God's purpose for them. Now he says in Luke, the seventh chapter, To what then will I liken the men of this very generation? And to what are they like? 
They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. So get the picture. The marketplace in that day was an open place in the usually the middle of the town where all of the farmers and the merchants from outside would come in and they would bring their produce. They would put a covering on the ground and there might be a huge stack of corn or a huge stack of maize or whatever the crop, the barley, the wheat. It would not be in containers. It would be on a large cloth on the ground. And he would scoop into that the amount of wheat you want or the amount of barley you want or the fresh vegetables that you were buying. And while all of this was going on, the children would be playing with each other. They would be bored by mom bargaining with the farmer. Are you kidding me? That's too much. I need a better price on that barley. Can't you do better than that? Well, the kids would get quickly bored with that kind of conversation. And so they begin to play with each other. Now, they probably played games like tag. But that was a bit unruly, and mom would not be happy if they were playing tag around the stacks of groceries that she was wanting to buy from. So no doubt she would have them sit down. Well, now, boredom is the mother of creativity. And so the kids are going to play something. So in this story, Jesus said they're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another, hey, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. And then we played funeral with you and you didn't cry. Why aren't you playing the games with us? Jesus says, John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he had a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, look, a gluttonous man and a wine drinker and a friend of tax collectors, and yet wisdom was vindicated by all of her children. Now, please understand, Luke did not just randomly put these stories in Scripture. He was the one above all else who said, let me order the stories the way I think they were told. So he comes bringing order. Matthew comes with his gospel saying, look, my purpose is not to tell the story exactly as it happened. I want to tell the story slanted to the Jewish people to convict them that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. Mark comes young, immature, he's listened to Peter tell the stories. He wants action. So Mark outlines his gospel based on, look, I don't want to bore you with this. There was lots of action going on. Here's the action stuff that happened. But Luke comes and he says, okay, no, guys. We need an orderly communication to convince the Greeks of what actually happened with Jesus. And then you have the gospel of John, totally different gospel. John is not very much concerned with what happened in the external, except as he can uncover the hidden parts of what the gospel means. 
And so you have the introduction in the first chapter, an astonishing introduction for a fisherman. Obviously, he had been trained and disciplined in the seminary of the Holy Spirit. So Luke comes and he tells his story. And he immediately begins to talk about a certain man of the Pharisees who was asking Jesus to please come and have dinner with him. I don't know how many times that invitation was extended. He was known as Simon the leper, but he was no longer a leper. He had been healed, no doubt, by Jesus. Now, there are other stories in the other Gospels about this same issue. Now, whether these are all the same story told with a little different slant, I don't know. But what I'm very certain of is that Luke is connecting, we played the flute for you and you did not dance, we mourned to you and you did not weep. He's tying that story of the Pharisee to this stonewalling. And we're confronted today, and I'm going to show you in the Word, the issue of stonewalling is paramount to Luke. He is very concerned about it. And to be honest with you, I'm very concerned about it. I am stonewalled on the radio broadcast day after day. And, to a large extent, we are stonewalling Jesus at the National Prayer Chapel. I want to show you that. And I want you to see what it looks like when a person stops stonewalling Jesus. This is what Luke is concerned about. So he begins to tell this story. He tells the story of how Jesus came. He entered into the house of the Pharisee. You understand, the Pharisee is the super religious guy of the day. He reclined to eat. In that day, you did not sit at a table. You lay on your side on a couch with a table low in front of you, usually a round table, and everyone like spokes on a wheel, sat around that table. You did not use knives and forks and spoons. You used flat bread or pita bread, and you dipped it in the many different kinds of salads, of beans crushed and mixed with spices, of meat, that's cut up in little bits and you tear the bread and you fold it and you make a little scoop for it. You scoop up what you want and then you scoop up something on top of that and you get a combo and then you eat it. It's not like sitting at a table with our formality. That's why it was necessary for the washing before the meal. Now, they also wore just a flat piece of leather 
for a sandal with thongs wrapped around their feet and their ankles. Notice what happens. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, having clearly known that he is reclining to eat in the house of the Pharisee, having brought an alabaster bottle of fragrant oil, and having stood at his feet behind him weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears, and she was wiping them with the hairs of her head. Would you be embarrassed? Well, I would be. If I'm sitting at your table with china and crystal and knives and forks, and we're all very proper, and a woman comes in the door and crawls under the table and takes my shoes off and my socks off and begins to weep over my feet, and all of you are trying to ignore that this is happening (laughs) under the table. And then she begins to pour on my feet this fragrant oil and massage it, and she's weeping, and her tears are falling on my feet, and she's wiping it with her hair. You understand, in that day, a proper woman did not take her hair down in public. Prostitutes did. Would you be peeking under the table to see what's going on? Well, I wouldn't be. I'd be sitting like stone, (laughs) not wiggling my toes. This was not a common practice. This was not acceptable behavior in this culture. This woman was clearly out of bounds. One of the first signs of not stonewalling Jesus is that we go beyond the cultural expectations of what is appropriate behavior toward Jesus. And there begins to be an outflowing from our heart and from our emotions that would be considered utterly inappropriate in a public place. But we're very proper. Keep a straight face. Sit properly in your chair. Be stern of countenance. Don't be too loud. Stonewalling. After all, we're not holy rollers. We don't roll on the ground. Having stood at his feet behind him weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears She was wiping them with the hairs of her head, and she was kissing his feet. It was customary in that day for pagans to kiss the feet of the ruler. So it was acceptable as the ruler is seated on his chair of authority for people to come forward and bow before him and kiss his feet. This was not ever a part of Jewish culture. It was not acceptable in Jewish culture. It was considered worship, and Jewish people only worshipped Yahweh, not their rulers. And yet here is this pagan, non-Jewish woman. How do we know that? Because if she'd been Jewish, she would never have behaved this way. She comes 
and she kisses the feet of Jesus, recognizing him as her ruler, as her master, subjugating herself by her behavior to Jesus, anointing them with fragrant oil. Now, oil was very cheap in Israel. It was the product of the day. But fragrant oil was extremely expensive. And in an alabaster container, this was worth probably a year's salary to somebody. Now the Pharisee, the one having invited him, having seen it, having seen this woman coming, spoke within himself, This man, if he were a prophet, he would be knowing who and what this woman is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. She is someone I would not even look twice at. He did not consider himself a sinner. He considered himself very upright and very religious. And he's saying in himself, look, This woman doesn't know what she's doing. And this man doesn't know what this woman is doing. This is a shame. And in my house. And I'm sure he's saying to himself, what do I do? Do I grab her and throw her out? Do I stop this sacrilege? And why is Jesus accepting this worship? Jesus Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, say it. He's secure in the belief that Jesus has no clue what he's thinking. He's being very proper. Two persons were debtors to a certain moneylender. The one was owing 500 denarii and the other 50 And not having resources of themselves to pay him back, he canceled the debt for both. So which of them must you say will love him more? Obviously, in this parable, Jesus is speaking about Simon the leper, who owes only 50 denarii. Now please, denarii is one day's work for a laboring man. And this woman is obviously the 500 denarii person. But tell me, if you're in a store and the cost is $100 and you only have $20, are you going to buy the $100 item? No. If you can't pay back, you're going to be sold in this culture into slavery, or your children are going to be taken and they will be sold into slavery. And Jesus is saying, they're both forgiven. Simon, which will love him more? Well, obviously, the one who was forgiven the most will love the most. And Jesus, having answered, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, teacher, say it. 
Two persons were debtors to a certain money lender, the one owing 500 denarii, the other 50. And not having resources of themselves to pay back, he canceled the debt for both. So which of them must you say will love him more? Then having answered, Simon said, I suppose for whom he canceled the greater debt. Then he said to him, you judge correctly. And having turned to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Does he see this woman? I entered into your house and you gave me no water for my feet. Which was a sign of very strong disrespect. He was making certain that no one could say that he had treated Jesus like a rabbi. He was not going to allow the gossip of the town to say Simon was unduly respectful of Jesus. Now please, even today, in Israel, you walk into a hotel, you have a reservation, first thing that will happen as your luggage is being brought in, the manager or owner of the hotel will be there to greet you. And he will greet you with a glass of water. He will hand you a glass of water. We went into Tiberias. The manager was there. He greeted us with glasses of water. And I said to him, no, thank you. And turned concerned for my luggage. And our agent said, Ray, don't insult him. Drink his water. And all of us, we had to put our luggage down. We had to drink the man's drink because to offer hospitality, he had to offer us a drink. Now, when we left Tiberias, and by the way, Tiberias was built, beginning to be built in 20 AD, and it was being built by Herod the Great as a secular city in opposition to the Jewish people. It was being set up as a secular place of business in Galilee because Herod did not want to deal with the, with the Jewish people. When we left Tiberias and we went to Jerusalem, the David Hotel, a huge structure and a beautiful hotel like the Four Seasons downtown. Guess what greeted us when we walked in the door? Cases of drink. And we were expected to go immediately and take a drink. This man offered Jesus nothing to drink. He offered him no water to wash his feet. He was not going out of his way for Jesus, not even in the smallest way. And then he also denied him a kiss on the cheek. 
the first thing that happens when you meet someone you were introduced to in Israel, they want to kiss you on the cheek. And if they really care about you, they're going to kiss you on the other side of the cheek too. So they're going to give you water to drink, and he's going to kiss you on the cheeks. Not the women, just the men. Sorry, gals. You're expected to be kissed by your husband. And you're expected to have one if you're out and about. This man did not offer Jesus a kiss. He offered him simply a meal with dirty feet and offered him only the cup that would come with the meal, not the cup that should have come as he entered the house. Now, had he been truly concerned about Jesus, as you enter the Pharisee's house, immediately on the side, there is a pool of water with a fresh flow coming into it. It's a place where, at a very minimum, you wash your hands. You wash your feet. And if you choose, you can disrobe. And he will give you a robe to wear. And you go into the pool and you are bathed completely. This is for the honored guests. I saw in excavations in Magdala, pools, these bathtubs, if you please, with stairs going down where the washings took place. Simon didn't offer that to Jesus. So Jesus says to him, I entered your house. You did not give water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss, but she has not ceased kissing my feet from the time I entered. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with fragrant oil. The custom of that day is for an honored guest. His hair is going to be wild and dried because he's been walking in a semi-arid area. So his feet are dry. His hair is all askew. There was oil offered to rub on your hands and smooth your hair back so that you would be presentable to sit at the table. None of this was offered to Jesus. No hospitality was offered by Simon except food. Therefore, I say to you, her many sins have been removed because she loved much. But for whom little is removed or little is forgiven, he loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And the word in the Greek means your sins have been removed from you. And the ones reclining to eat began to say within themselves, who is this that even removes sin? In other words, it wasn't just Simon and Jesus. 
There was a whole company of people who had been invited to this feast. And obviously Simon did not want to go beyond just the courtesy of offering him food because he had healed him from leprosy. Jesus turns to the woman again and he says, Your faith has saved you. You must go in peace. You must go in shalom. You have shown me every love and every courtesy. And now my gift to you is total peace in your heart. He said, your faith has saved you. The Greek word there is sozo. You find the same word used in Matthew 14, verse 30, when Peter is sinking in the water, in the billows of the sea, and is in danger of being drowned. It says, Peter was saved, sozo. In Mark 10, 52, the blind man was saved, it says, from his blindness, sozo. The possessed man, the demon-possessed man, in Mark 8, 36, he was saved, sozo. Matthew 1.21, the angel said, Jesus will sozo his people from their sins. Save. In Scripture, the word save means a radical deliverance from that which is going to take one's life. Whether a physical danger, a health problem, or sin. It is absolutely absurd to think that one can both be righteous and sinful because a Christian is sozo. He is saved. So we do not say, Peter, go ahead and sink and drown. And when I come back, I'm going to resurrect you. No, we'd say that's not being sozoed. Simon, in the hardness of his heart, is stonewalling Jesus. There is no pouring out the overwhelming presence of love that melts a person's heart because Simon's heart had not been melted because he didn't think he needed to be saved from anything except leprosy. Thank you, Jesus. Now I can have my life back. So he used Jesus to get what he wanted. I've seen men who will use Jesus to get a strategy for success so they can have the money they want or the job they want. You cannot use Jesus. Simon used Jesus to get his healing from leprosy. And no doubt he thought he was entitled to healing because he was a Pharisee. 
but it left him cold of heart. What is it that melts a person's heart? What melts our heart is when we see the true condition of our life. We see the unrighteousness of our heart. We see the anxiety of our spirit. We see the wicked thoughts. We feel the pinch of our sin. And we turn to Jesus and he sozos us. And he totally delivers us from wickedness. But some of you, I think, do not want to be delivered from your wickedness because you'd still like to use Jesus as a self-improvement tool in your life. And so you will never pour out the melted heart for Jesus. So you can go day after day in the prayer closet and never weep. Some of you have not wept in years. Almost a day does not go by, let alone a week, without my tears flowing in the presence of Jesus. Because I know from whence I come. And I know that all my hopes and all my dreams are found in Jesus Christ. I know that all of my righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. And it melts my heart. I don't want to be tied to the wickedness of this world. I want to be totally separated from it. And my heart is hungry for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I wake up in the morning and my first thought is, Holy Spirit, are you here yet? I go to sleep at night and I'm saying, Jesus, I pour out my heart to you. Will you send your Holy Spirit for the National Prayer Chapel? Will you send your Holy Spirit for this city? Will you do the work of compassion and mercy? We are leprous before you. We are going to die if you don't come. And my heart is melted within me. And all I can do is pour out my love and say, Jesus, I love you. I trust you. I see what you're doing in my heart. I see what you're doing in my life. You are compassionate and merciful and kind. You have forgiven me for my sins. You have brought shalom into my life. The peace of God is in my soul. How can I but weep before him? There is no darkness I desire to hang on to. There is no illicit relationship that I desire in my heart. There is no gain in my heart that I want from Jesus. I want the will of God to be done. I want the salvation of the lost to be brought about. I love Jesus. And it breaks my heart when we as a congregation stonewall Jesus, when our heart is not poured out for him, when we're casual, casual in prayer, casual in devotion, casual in the reading of the word, 
busy about everything, busy about nothing. Because all that matters is the word of the living. And it came to pass afterward. Please understand, these stories are connected. It came to pass afterward, he was also traveling through city by city and village by village, preaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. What is the gospel of the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is not geographic. It is, as we've often said before, the kingdom of God is the divine authority of God that he exercises over our life. So the gospel of the kingdom of God is that God is willing to come and exercise his authority over your heart and over your life. He's willing to heal and restore. He's willing to have compassion upon you. He's willing to sozo you. The twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed from evil spirits and infirmities or sicknesses. Mary had been healed of infirmities and sicknesses. Mary, the one being called Magdalene from Magdala. I see that city street. And I want to tell you what happened. I stood in that city street of Magdala. And I began to pray and I began to cry. And suddenly I saw Mary of Magdala. She was swishing her skirts. She was dressed like Jezebel. She was lost in a prostitute. And I saw her meet Jesus. And fall at his feet. And it was gone. Mary, the one being called Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons. And Joanna, who was the wife of the steward of Herod. And Susanna. And many others who were providing for him with their possessions. How did Jesus Walk day by day as a preacher of the gospel. He didn't pass an offering plate. Instead, these precious women, they followed after Jesus. And they provided out of their own possessions the money to fill the Judas bag. For Judas was the keeper of the money. Now, please. What I'm talking about today is not just an emotional outpouring of a melted heart. It is that, but it is more than that. It is to follow Jesus. And it is to open our purses and our pockets and to sacrificially give for the gospel of the kingdom of God to be proclaimed. That's what I mean when I say not stonewalling Jesus. We're out of the overwhelming outflow of gratefulness and shalom in your heart. You freely follow Jesus, even physically follow Jesus. 
and you provide for the work of the kingdom of God with the finances that God places in your hands. And you don't say, well, let's look carefully at how much we have left and then let's give Jesus a little bit out of what's left over. Are you kidding me? Out of the overflow of your heart, you give to Jesus. And then after you've given to Jesus, you say, okay, now, Jesus, how do I pay my bills with what I have left? Because are they your bills? No, they're not your bills. You are given to Jesus. The bills become his bills because you only spend what Jesus tells you to spend. You only do with money what Jesus tells you to do. Now, please, the strongest sign of you not stonewalling Jesus, are you willing to follow him? And are you willing to support the work of the gospel of the kingdom of God sacrificially? Not out of what you have left, but out of the overflow of a heart melted by love for Jesus Christ, where you have left your sin, you've been healed of your diseases, the demons have been cast out of your heart and out of your life. But Simon didn't do that. Why? Because Simon would not confess the darkness of his heart. The only way you can have a melted heart before God is to leave your sin. It's to leave your sin. To leave your self-sufficiency. To lose your sense of, look, life is about me, and so I have to take care of my business. Really, is it your business? Or is it God's business? It's God's business. You don't give God out of what you have left. You give him the first portion. You don't say, oh, if I do this, Jesus, I won't be able to do this. Well, does Jesus want you to do this? He'll tell you if he does. What I want you to see today is that when you begin to pursue righteousness, when you begin to pursue sanctification, the first thing that will happen is full confession of your heart's condition before him. And as you confess honestly your heart's condition, and some of you don't even know your heart's condition because you have been so busy, you've not spent time reading the word. You've had favorite sins. You've had favorite things of idols, wickedness you've hung on to for so long. If God begins to speak to you about him, you'll say, what are you talking about? In other words, there has to come a conscious pursuit of Jesus where we say to him, okay, Jesus, I'm done. I'm going to cut off all sin in my heart. I'm going to cut off all wickedness in my mind. I'm not going to go there anymore. I am going to serve you, Jesus. And there comes out of that a melting of the heart. When a person does not weep before Jesus, I know they have hidden sin in their heart. They have anger in their spirit. They're intellectually committed, but not heart committed. As that heart commitment begins to come, 
there comes with it a melting of our heart before God. And with the melting of the heart before God comes a willingness to follow and go and do whatever Jesus tells us to go and do. And with that going, there comes the giving of our finances over into the hand of God. Today, are you stonewalling God? Is there any area of resistance in your heart? where you are holding on to some wickedness, some pride, some ownership? Or is your heart open? Are you melted inside by the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus? Have you poured out your love to Jesus? Mighty God of heaven, please, please teach me to, to know how to pour out my heart to you. Lord, I've been taught formalism all of my life, properness, appropriateness. Lord, it's all a lie. I want to be free just to pour out my heart to you, Jesus. To not be restrained by my culture. To not be restrained by what people are going to think. Lord, I pour out my heart to you today. I love you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother, my sister. I'll talk to you soon.